Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Bridget, and this is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. So today I'm joined by our longtime and very talented researcher and now my new co-host, Bridget Healy. Uh, Welcome to this side of the mic, Bridget. Thanks. Great to be here. Um, So we're starting season three and it's been, (laughs) there's a lot going on in international affairs, so there's no shortage of topics for us to talk about this year. Um. It's certainly been a turbulent few weeks. I'd say the majority of media attention is laser focused on the Trump administration's uh, numerous activities in week one. We'll see what week two has to uh, has in store for us. But we will not be speaking about Trump, or at least trying not to in this episode tonight. Uh, We have a very different topic. So this episode is going to focus on Middle East relations and specifically between Israel and Palestine and strategic initiatives going on in the area. So just to give our listeners a bit of a background on the issue, uh, conflict between the Israelis and Palestinians has long been a defining feature of Middle Eastern instability. Uh, The roots of the conflict date back to a time before the creation of the modern state of Israel. And at present, the conflict revolves primarily between Hamas, the organization in charge of the Gaza Strip and the main perpetrator of violence against Israel, and the State of Israel, uh, represented here by the Israeli Defense Forces, or IDF. Uh, Hamas's core objective since its inception in the 1980s has been the destruction of Israel as a state, and Hamas has targeted both military personnel and civilians with suicide bombings, rocket attacks, and Israel has retaliated in kind to this violence with targeted military operations. Now, the third major Gaza military operation carried out by the IDF was Operation Protective Edge, and this spanned July and August of 2014, primarily. Protective Edge, an internationally controversial and divisive military action, is considered to be representative of a new military doctrine focusing on fighting non-state actors, and it represents a tactical shift away from the strategies employed in interstate wars of the 20th century. Similar tactics are also being used across the region against other militant groups such as ISIS. So though we recognize that there is so much ground to cover in the dynamics of the uh, Israel-Palestine relationship itself, today's episode we're going to try to at least begin with uh, a more narrow look at the tactical approach used in Operation Protective Edge and in other operations in the region before placing it in the larger context of counterinsurgency efforts on the part of Israel. And we're very lucky today to have Michael Shkolnik here with us in the studio today. Michael Shkolnik is a PhD candidate at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, and he focuses on the evolution of terrorist and insurgent organizations. Michael served as a scholar-in-residence and senior policy advisor with the Strategic Foresight Unit at the Department of Global Affairs Canada. In the past, he has worked with counterterrorism and international security institutes in Ottawa, D.C., and Israel. The views expressed here are strictly Michael's and do not represent any institution or government. 
He has published on Israel's counterinsurgency strategy entitled Mowing the Grass and Operation Protective Edge, Israel's strategy for protracted asymmetric conflict with Hamas, and he's here to tell us more about his research. Thank you so much for coming in today. Well, thank you for having me, guys. Oh, yeah, thank you. So diving right in, um, could you perhaps explain to our listeners what is involved in Israel's mowing the grass strategy? Uh what particular advantages or disadvantages are associated with this uh, tactical approach? Yeah, so first I'll start with uh, how I conceive of counterinsurgency broadly. And at its basic core is it's countering an insurgency or a violent, organized, non-state actor that is seeking to challenge a regime in some way or maybe even topple it. So in the classic sense, insurgencies usually emerge and evolve from within the state that targets a certain regime. Lately, we've seen some Western alliances fight insurgencies abroad. But Israel's situation is quite unique, where they're facing consolidated and powerful insurgent organizations that are situated on their borders and so act like pseudo-conventional militaries. So in terms of how they conduct counterinsurgency, I like to compare it to uh, Western approaches. Uh, the Western approach largely uh, emphasizes the hearts and minds approach, where they try to dissuade passive civilians from joining the ranks of insurgent organizations um, by offering a series of carrots and perhaps sticks. But Israel doesn't, uh, isn't you know, deceiving itself. It knows that it can't really win the hearts and minds of the Arab street that are situated in these conflicts. And they understand that they're in this protracted or intractable conflict with insurgent organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah. So they take a more enemy-centric approach, which is largely based on containment and deterrence. So the basic mowing the grass model here is after I Israel suffers uh, from provocative and escalatory attacks, uh, domestic public pressure essentially force Israel to act. And they go into these contexts like Gaza in 2014 to degrade and destroy a significant portion of the insurgents' uh, capabilities and leadership it, for the purposes of restoring quiet to Israel's borders. But again, we see this cycle where insurgent groups uh, rebuild their capabilities over the next few years and they live to fight another day. This is different, I think. It's important to mention that in the past, Israel used to um, fight multiple Arab armies at one time, a, a purely conventional interstate th uh, threat. And there, they had a clear strategy where they would go in deep into enemy territory and usually destroy the armies within a matter of days or weeks, and it was a clear military victory. And they would leverage these victories for eventual peace agreements with Jordan and Egypt, which is phenomenal. Uh, and this is why I think Israel is one of the best strategic situations it's ever been in its history. But since 1982, Israel has been fighting largely non-state actors in what we define as asymmetric warfare. And their mil the military victory is very hard to define by the virtue of guerrilla tactics on behalf of these insurgent groups that blend into the civilian population. So success here from Israel's perspective is evaluated on how long they can achieve temporary deterrence and a relative period of calm before the next round of fighting ensues. Given that, you had mentioned targeting leadership and the capabilities of these militant groups. So given that you're trying to disrupt Hamas in these very structured and toned ways, could it also have the reciprocal effect of encouraging them to continue fighting and moving around that strategy? Right. No, that's a good question. And I'll flat out say that I think Israel recognizes that it is in these protracted conflicts and that whether they do nothing or go above and beyond to destroy their capabilities, unless these organizations suddenly accept Israel as the Jewish state in some form, 
they will be encouraged to continue um, fighting Israel when they f uh, have the willingness and opportunity to do so. Um, I think Israel's objectives are quite clear, as I've mentioned, in terms of uh, deterring and containing these um, enemy militant organizations. But we have to understand that they don't have a long-run strategy in terms of trying to convert these groups to accept them like Egypt and Jordan. Um, but there are victories in the short term. As For example, when Israel uncovered uh, Hamas's underground tunnel network, they realized how vast it was that they had networks of tunnels underground Israeli communities, and they disrupted plots that were uh, going to see mass casualty terrorist attacks on Israeli citizens. So there, were, there was an unintended benefit from the war that they stumbled upon. Um, with respect to targeted killing, um, there's no consensus around targeted killings effectiveness. Here I'm talking about whether it works or not, uh, not its a legitimacy or legality. Uh, but the context and nuance is key in targeted killing. I mean, before 9-11, it's important to note that Israel was largely condemned for its targeted killing campaigns throughout the Second Intifada in the early 2000s. But after 9-11, it's become almost a blatant staple of Western counterterrorism uh, campaigns. And even proponents of the strategy realize that it's not a, there's, it's not a silver bullet that's going to just facilitate the demise of these terrorist organizations with uh, one targeted killing. Uh, hierarchical organizations are quite resilient and can replace their leadership. But they accept that targeted killing is a more cost-effective approach than wholesale reoccupation or, or invasions. And yes, we can expect that in the short term, some targeted killings may lead to a rise in terrorist attacks, maybe from revenge or lower level operatives are less constrained. But Israel's targeted killing approach is quite nuanced. They realize the value of taking out experts that are very difficult to replace, like engineers or pilots uh, or aviation experts for the drone program, for example, or even suicide bomb makers. Uh, they can't just be replaced easily. They've been training and uh, working at this for years and decades. Uh, it, this is how Israel largely stifled the Second Intifada. Uh, but to go back to the 2014 war, Israel actually expanded its targeted killing campaign in a very multifaceted fashion where they actually focused on mid-level commanders in the field, which led to many of them deserting the battlefield and going running away with their families to safer areas in Gaza. And this led to a lot of mistrust and dissent among the lower rank and file of Hamas's fighters when they saw their commanders abandon them. And th this led to a lot of chaos in the field as well. Uh, other intelligence infiltrations in that war led Hamas to abandon communications equipment because they feared that Israel would be listening to them. So that affected their fighting and coordination in the battlefield. But what was very important that I stress in my uh, research is that towards the end of that conflict, Israel took out, I believe, uh, three of the top military wing leaders. And uh, this was really sent shockwaves across the military wing because only a handful of people knew where these guys were at any given time. And so right away... Um, people were afraid that they were collaborating with Israel, which led to a few arbitrary summary executions. So there's a lot of mistrust that was uh, facilitated because of these targeted ca killing campaigns. Um, not only did it uh, sow mistrust between the military wing, but also between the political wing of Hamas, which was largely situated in Qatar and wanted the war to continue, but the military wing realized that their uh, main capabilities were destroyed at this point, and it was just futile to continue waging this uh, war of attrition. It, it does seem interesting how the success of mowing the grass hinges primarily on its admittedly you know, restricted and and limited goals it's not looking for a long-term solution and um it seems that recognition that that is just not on the table 
is making or is 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 one of the reasons behind why this is so uh, effective. Moving on slightly, is it possible that some aspects of Israel's approach, so the perceived lack of proportionality in its response, um, so in mowing the grass, uh, could this serve to perhaps undermine the goal of suppressing militant activity? Yes, I, I can totally uh, see that. And the key word here in the question is perceived, uh, obviously. Uh, proportionality is quite a complex concept to many people. It means different things to different people. Uh, in the legal sense, and I'm no legal expert, but from my understanding as it relates to the laws of armed conflict, in that a proportionate response requires a certain military operation or action that does not inflict excessive collateral damage in relation to the value of the military target. So these are uh, these are quite subjective and highly ambiguous things, but there are standards that are involved that Israel largely follows, and they have lawyers that are embedded in their units, so they seek to try to achieve some proportionality throughout these conflicts. And obviously, case by case, these need to be evaluated, and there's no doubt that there were some strikes and operations that would violate the laws of proportionality. But overall, I think Israel is regarded as having very high stringent rules of engagement, and it sets quite a high precedent for Western countries engaged in similar operations in the Middle East, especially how Israel warns the targets and the inhabitants around them before they engage in these um, airstrikes. But moving away from the legal aspect of proportionality, again, uh, yes, if you were watching the media coverage of the war, you would think that uh, Israel's response was quite disproportionate. But if we look at some of the facts that came out afterwards, uh, the Mayor Amit Intelligence Center, which published data on the names of the deceased in, in the Palestinian territory, uh, there was a disproportionate number of military-aged men. And the ratio largely, uh, I think, approached more of a one-to-one. So for every militant that was killed, one civilian was killed. As, as unfortunate as, and sad as that is, uh, that is a ratio that other uh, Western militaries have uh, largely failed to accomplish. Uh, and again, we have to understand what Hamas is trying to achieve here. They know that they can't defeat Israel militarily at this time, so they can win tactical victories by turning the international community against Israel, By and they have this incentive to inflate the civilian casualties. And this is largely expressed in their strategies, where they purposefully convert civilian structures into military ones. We saw Plenty of examples of schools turned into weapons depots, civilian homes used as cover for tunnel entrances, and hospitals literally used as command and control centers. So it puts Israel in a bind in terms of when can they strike a certain uh, target or not. And, And they've captured Hamas manuals that lay out this strategy clearly, saying that Israel is constrained in their operations and rules of engagement, so we have to hide among the civilians. Uh, But yes, as you mentioned, keyword is perceived. So when international pressure arises because of the media coverage, Israel's, you can argue that Israel is inhibited from acting even more forcefully than it would have. So therefore, that can encourage militant activity. But at the same time, Hamas engages in this broader provocation strategy, which is uh, a strategy that a lot of other terrorist organizations have used throughout history, where they provoke a far more superior military to engage in an indiscriminate attack so that civilian casualties are inflicted and that which that would largely hopefully gain more support and mobilization for the militant organization. So yes, I mean, Hamas did achieve a short-term burst in popular support. And again, this also happened with Hezbollah after 2006 when, when they achieved what was perceived a stalemate with a far superior military, the Arab world saw Hezbollah as the victor and they were very popular. But in both cases, a lot of that popularity has waned. Now... Uh, going on to 
the broader scope in the region. You had previously written pieces on Israeli counterinsurgency efforts in the Sinai against ISIS, as well as Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syria. So how do you think mowing the grass, this strategy, affects Israel in those areas? Okay, great question. Um, so first, I think I would like to talk about how it's mowing the grass right now with respect to Hezbollah. So as I mentioned, the 2006 Lebanon war was a similar engagement where after Hezbollah provocations, Israel went in and largely destroyed some of their long-range and sophisticated weaponry. And as we know, Hezbollah is and remains Israel's number one threat compared to these other insurgent groups. But in terms of right now, Hezbollah is largely bogged down in the civil war in Syria because they view the loss of Syria and the Assad regime as an existential threat to its own existence because Syria remains its main weapons conduit from Iran through Damascus to Lebanon. And so here, whereas in Gaza in 2014, mowing the grass involved an invasion and destruction of uh, uh, capabilities and infrastructure, here mowing the grass takes the form of Israel flying in periodically and reportedly taking out weapons shipments and depots that belong to Hezbollah that they view as game-changing weapons. So, for example, anti-aircraft missile batteries or drones that could really inhibit, um, inhibit Israel's ability to operate in Lebanese airspace, for example. Uh, one of these airstrikes, as I mentioned, some of my research uh, focuses on how militants use drones, uh, and Hezbollah is leading uh, the at the forefront of this. So they've been lately using drones for attacks against some of the militants that they're fighting in Syria. This is a huge, uh, you know, game-changing development. It's not just used for surveillance and uh, coordination. So Israel is viewing these developments, <clears throat> sorry, um, with great concern. Uh, also, Hezbollah is creating a new base of operations to strike Israel from the Syrian side of the Golan Heights, and this is a red line for Israel. Um, in January 2015, they conducted an airstrike that killed J Jihad Mugnia and an Iranian general and other um, Hezbollah operatives there as well as they were trying to uh, enhance cells operating there to attack Israel. Um, Hezbollah's incentive is to create a new base outside of Lebanon so that they can fight a war against Israel in Syria as well as Lebanon, so expanding their territorial control. But despite the fact that Hezbollah is bogged down in this civil war and, and throwing all their chips in, they've diverted significant resources to its future fight against Israel, as I've mentioned, in Lebanon. So they're rebuilding their terrorist infrastructure and actually moving it more, more into the civilian and populated areas, taking a, a page out of Hamas's playbook. And uh, Israel is very concerned because when Hezbollah fights Israel, they're largely on the defensive but in Syria, they've gained a lot of military education working with the Russians, an advanced world-class military. And they've now uh, began to learn how to engage in some offensive operations as well, like taking territory. And so right now, to leave off with Hezbollah, they have far more rockets than they did in 2006, over 100,000 by Israeli estimates. And some of them can strike any part of the country. Uh, so the next confrontation with um, Israel will be far more devastating uh, than the last. I think I have one final question for you. So kind of bringing it back just to Israel-Palestine. Um, do you believe that the numerous attacks by lone wolf militants that have risen uh, during 2015 and 2016 are a response to military operations like Protective Edge? And by that, I mean, could this be an indication that the Palestinians are shifting from a conventional uh, insurgent uh, organization with a strict hierarchy towards a more decentralized um, sort of approach that lacks a hierarchy for Israel to target? 
So no, I don't think that popular uprising had anything to do with a concerted shift in strategy or Hamas's uh, war with Israel in 2014. What we saw was something quite uh, new in that phenomena, that the Palestinian youth, largely acting on their own and without any organizational backing, were engaging in uh, terrorist attacks. Uh, they were mostly unaffiliated with any Palestinian political faction. Most of them were roughly 17 to 22 in age, and the peak of which hit around October 2015. And so if we're talking about the motivation of these attackers, it's quite multifaceted, and I'll get into that. But the spark, the trigger of this violence, I would argue, uh, stemmed back to uh, rumors that Israel was engaging in a takeover of Muslim holy sites in uh, Jerusalem, like especially the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound and the Temple Mount. Uh, but these were largely found to be false. And unfortunately, the Palestinian Authority president also uh, propagated the, this claim, which emboldened a lot of individuals uh, to partake in, in the violence. Um, most of the violence took the shape of uh, knife and stabbing attacks, so very rudimentary means, very few shooting attacks, uh, one suicide bombing as well. But And also cars were used as um, um, attack methods for vehicular rammings. Well, very few were uh, largely, uh, very few were ISIS-inspired, but I would say most of them uh, engage in this for all their own personal reasons. Some of them came from socially marginalized backgrounds, and it, uh, the violence kind of fed off each other where they were imitating each other, and they were seeking recognition as martyrs because, um, as many researchers have noted, uh, Palestinian society in the West Bank, uh, through their institutions um, and schools, promote this culture of martyrdom where terrorists are seen as heroic. Um, but at the same time, it's important to note that they were uh, largely acting because of the despair that they're feeling and uh, what the grievances they have against the fact that Israel maintains a military presence in the West Bank. So that cannot be discounted. But uh, in my opinion, a lot of the Western media coverage uh, kind of fixated on the role of settlements and the Israeli occupation, uh, but overlooked the importance of incitement because the occupation and settlements are largely constants. Constants can explain variation and balance in outbreaks of violence. If you s observed the incitement that was coming out of the Palestinian Authority and Fatah's affiliations, you would see how they were encouraging people to emulate previous terrorists to engage in individual initiatives. And what was interesting is that Hamas and Hezbollah actually tried to hijack this popular revolution, kind of like how Muslim Brotherhood hijacked the popular revolution in um, Egypt. But they largely failed. They tried to uh, pay some cells to engage in violence, but Israel was able to disrupt those. Uh, it's harder to disrupt an individual waking up one morning and, and trying to uh, stab someone. Um, but this is a great example where mowing the grass can't apply because this is not an organized uprising. You had right-wing leaders in the Israeli government arguing for more punitive measures and door-to-door -door, door -door sweeping operations, just like they did in the Intifada, which was organized. But the, luckily, the base of the Israeli security establishment realized that these methods wouldn't work and only embolden and enrage uh, more Palestinians to engage in this. So they realized uh, they had to shift tactics quite uh, quickly, and they realized that a lot of these attackers were posting on Facebook so uh, that they were about to commit an attack or that they were really uh, aggrieved. And Israel really engaged with their social media analytical pra uh, platforms and offensive cyber capabilities to prevent a lot more of these attacks in addition to working with the Palestinian Authority security uh, forces. So at the same time, you had Palestinian Authority incitement at the political level for domestic audience uh, 
purposes. But underneath, we had uh, Israeli cooperation with the Palestinian Authority, which is an encouraging uh, development to stifle some of these attacks. And eventually, I believe with those measures and reaching out to uh, community leaders who didn't want to see um, their communities punished in response for uh, an individual's um, actions, the, the youth realized that it was a, a futile endeavor. Uh, and so violence reduced to a, what they quote call a tolerable level of violence, uh, before, returning to pre-October 2015 levels. So it shows the limitations of mowing the grass, but it shows also how Israel is capable of adapting quickly relative to the situation. And it also shows that how one incident or an increase in Palestinian incitement or change to the security and governance structures can ignite a violence, uh, which is difficult to stop immediately. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much. It was really great to get a, a purely strategic analysis of the real scope and limitations of this Mowing the Grass initiative. Um, up next, we'll take a short break and return with our second guest, Professor Mira Sukarov, in just a moment. So thanks again, Thank Michael. You. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. You're listening to Policy Talks Podcast, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. So we're back and ready to jump uh, into our topic once again. And to help us out, we have our next guest on the line, Professor Sukarov, who comes to us from Carleton University's uh, Department of Political Science. So Professor Sukarov holds a PhD in government from Georgetown University, an MA in political science from the University of Toronto, and a BA in Middle East Studies from McGill University. She specializes in psychological and identity approaches to international relations and Israel-Palestinian relations and diaspora Jewish politics. She's the author of The International Self, Psychoanalysis and the Search for Israeli-Palestinian Peace, and articles on Israeli-Palestinian relations and diaspora Jewish relations, emotions and international relations, pedagogy, and reflections on the craft of being a scholar blogger. So quite the background. So before the break, we spoke with Michael Skolnick, and he was a PhD student and also a, a GAC employee. And we were talking about his research on mowing the grass, which is part of Operation Protective Edge with Israel in relation to Palestine. And right. this use by the IDF forces, we were curious to know whether these tactics fit into a larger goal of decreasing regional terrorism, because there seemed to be a lot of hope on its applicability to IS and Hezbollah and other non-state insurgent actors in the Middle East. Uh, well, not my area of specialty is Israel-Palestine, so I'll, I'll stick to that. But I think Israel has certainly hoped 
that it can uh, maintain a policy of targeting uh, Hamas heads, um, of, of engaging in counterinsurgency operations, of keeping uh, the conflict just barely managed, keeping the conflict simmering, um, rather than taking bold moves to, uh, let's say, engage in negotiations or look at areas where Hamas and Israel might have some fundamental overlap. So I think we've seen that dynamic go on between Israel and Hamas, which, of course, is the Palestinian body that rules the Gaza Strip. Okay. Now, I have a question just in general with the mowing the grass approach. Would you say that the doctrine's need for the habitual targeting of insurgents and is that serving more to inflame tensions and almost ensure that the region remains permanently destabilized, given that IDF forces, you know, following along the mowing the grass doctrine are forced to engage routinely with uh, Hamas and other insurgent groups? You know, you could say it keeps the region destabilized, or you could say that in the case of Israel and Hamas and Gaza, there is a certain stability from the uh, government-to-government so-called perspective. Certainly um, very distressing to be a Palestinian living under Hamas rule, where uh, the IDF um, quite regularly engages in large-scale operations. We saw that in 0809, we saw it in 2012, and we saw it in 2014. And similarly, being an Israeli um, under threat of Hamas rockets, though they're uh, quite imprecise and a lot less lethal in terms of their precision, is also um, quite a quite a problem. Um, so I would say that what we see is that, yes, tensions are being inflamed, um, less likelihood for meaningful peace agreement, um, less desire on both sides to, to see what kinds of shared interests there might be, uh, even despite the joint enmity. You know, I also want to add that we've seen uh, repeatedly out of Israel's uh, veteran security staff, particularly ones who are now retired, we've seen this in the, the, the documentary, the excellent documentary film, The Gatekeepers. There's a great awareness among those uh, veterans of Israeli security forces and intelligence staff in particular that this tactic of what we're calling mowing the lawn or targeted assassinations in particular is not a long-term strategy. And it's not necessarily that they're they're smarter than Israeli government officials, but they're more willing to look long-term, and they have uh, fewer, they don't have the same kinds of electoral considerations, although at least one of them now uh, is in Israeli politics. But they're willing to look long-term and really issue uh, quite a serious critique of their government's very short-term thinking type of policies. Kind of going off of that, another point of interest that we really had was regarding proportionality. So mowing the grass has been described to us as this very precise measure that is aimed at usually mid-level agents, but it does have some civilian casualties. And while we know this to be a very common fact of war in a lot of different situations, we were wondering, given that Israel has all these intelligence and communications capabilities and a lot more materials and weapons that far surpass Hamas's inventory. The issue of proportionality, like is mowing the grass and making these sort of habitual attacks, is it really 
going against a sense of proportionality in the international relations system, as well as does it gain Israel even more scrutiny because Hamas isn't held to the state actors Geneva Conventions that the Palestinian Authority otherwise would had it been recognized? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, remember that proportionality has to do with whether the amount of the intensity of force deployed matches or is no more, is, is, is matches the goals fought in, in that battle or in that war. So it really, so whether something is proportional or not, whether a particular uh, action is deemed proportional or not, according to the ethics of war, according to international law, uh, is, is fully in the context of a given war. Um, and so we certainly have to decry the degree and um, number of Palestinian civilian casualties during the last um, number of conflicts and wars between Israel and Gaza, uh, but we would need to look uh, in particular at more finely tuned moments of war and whether the use of force matched the goals. Right. So given that, we, if you don't mind, we wanted to hop into a little bit of multimedia and pull up the recent statements by John Kerry, as well as Netanyahu back in December from the UN. Sure. Israel's permanent representative to the United Nations, who does not support a two-state solution, said after the vote last week, quote, It was to be expected that Israel's greatest ally would act in accordance with the values that we share and veto this resolution. I am compelled to respond today that the United States did, in fact, vote in accordance with our values, just as previous U.S. administrations have done at the Security Council before us. They failed to recognize that this friend, the United States of America, that has done more to support Israel than any other country, this friend that has blocked countless efforts to delegitimize Israel, cannot be true to our own values or even the stated democratic values of Israel. And we cannot properly defend and protect Israel if we allow a viable two-state solution to be destroyed before our own eyes. Now I must express my deep disappointment with the speech today of John Kerry, a speech that was almost as unbalanced as the anti-Israel resolution passed at the UN last week. No one wants peace more than the people of Israel. Israel remains committed to resolving the outstanding differences between us and the Palestinians through direct negotiations. This is how we made peace with Egypt. This is how we made peace with Jordan. It's the only way we'll make peace with the Palestinians. That has always been Israel's policy. Touching on that theme of negotiations, do you think that this mowing the grass approach can, on its own, convince um, some of the more hardcore elements of Palestinian leadership or Palestinian militants to moderate their methods and demands? Could it prove complementary to negotiations, or is it proving detrimental? Well, one thing which is really important to recall is that negotiations so far 
have taken place between Israel and the Palestinian Authority, and that's the Palestinian ruling body in the West Bank. When we're talking about mowing grass and major Israeli counterinsurgency operations, we've generally been talking about Israel and Gaza, although Israel does do incur the IDF does do incursions into the West Bank as well. But Israel and Gaza is a different uh, story, really. It's, it's there's a different Palestinian political body ruling Gaza, and that is Hamas. And so far, there's been no talk of peace talks occurring between Israel and Hamas. So Israel, and if we look at potential and past peace talks between Israel and the Palestinian Authority, we see that the Palestinian Authority has greatly moderated their demands, and the, the PLO and Fatah, the main ruling party of the Palestinian Authority, has greatly moderated their demands from when Fatah uh, was first created and uh, the PLO in the 60s. So right now, uh, the Palestinian Authority is committed, at least on paper, to a two-state solution. The biggest uh, sticking point right now between Israel and the Palestinian Authority would be refugee return. Other things have seen uh, much um, closer policy positions being hammered out in previous rounds of talk. Kind of going back to 2014 and on this vein of thought, when we're talking about especially the Palestinian Authority and Hamas, now in 2014, to my knowledge, there was a unity agreement that was kind of... The Palestinian Authority being able to have some pull with Hamas and enabling them to come to EU or what was seen as North American standards. And it seemed at the point that negotiations after that point through the UN broke down and Israel really doesn't favor a UN option. They seem to favor more bilateral relations. Is that accurate? Yes, Israel has always had quite a fraught uh, relationship with the UN ever since, sorry, after the point at which the UN General Assembly voted for partition, voted to create or to propose or to support um, a Palestinian, which was then known, would have been then called an Arab state, a Palestinian Arab state in what was then the Palestine Mandate and a Jewish state alongside it. Of course, that never came to fruition because the, 19, the Palestinian and Arab sides rejected it, and the 1948 war broke out. But after that, the Israeli government and every government since has been deeply committed to a much more independent and unilateral type of foreign policy, and as you rightly pointed out, bilateralism when the, uh, when the opportunity presented itself. So Israel's first prime minister, Ben-Gurion, famously said, UN Shmuen kind of derisively. In Hebrew, it's um shmum, he said. In other words, just disregard what the UN is saying. They're not important. So when Israel did make peace with the Arab states, it was in bilateral context. So Israel and Egypt forged peace from the 1978 Camp David talks. They signed peace the following year in 79. And Israel and Jordan signed a peace treaty in the mid-90s. So you're right that bilateralism would be Israel's preference, uh, despite uh, having some multilateral uh, channels, uh, the Arab League uh, peace proposal has been floating out there, Clinton parameters through the, through the U.S. good offices. There are proposals out there. It's a matter of Israel and the Palestinians grabbing onto them. Given John Kerry's remarks in that, in that vein, then is there any nation or country that Israel can look to to sort of mediate a situation, or do they really prefer to do it one-on-one? Well, the U.S. has had success 
uh, particularly in the uh, 1978 Camp David Accords. Remember, Camp David mm-hmm. is a presidential retreat in Maryland, so that was when um, Jimmy Carter was able to, President Carter was able to broker uh, uh, a peace between Israel and Egypt. Um, the Oslo Agreement, which was the closest Israel has come to making peace with the Palestinians, was helped along by the good offices of Norwegian officials, even though it was President Clinton, American President Clinton, who stood on the White House lawn and seemed to take the credit. The Americans really came in, um, really at the 11th hour. So ultimately, the U.S. can, in principle, serve uh, as an honest broker and help nudge the parties together, particularly with possible bridging proposals. Uh, in practice now, particularly given uh, who's at the helm of, of U.S. politics right now, I think the idea of a of a Trump administration doing much good in, in Israel-Palestine in terms of peacemaking is, is a distant dream. I actually wonder if you might uh, be able to expand on that last point and just speculate a bit as to the direction that U.S.-Israeli relations might take going forwards. Um, yeah. I think we are seeing a real confluence of values and interests in many ways between the current Israeli government, led by Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu, and uh, the Trump administration. There has been talk of moving the American embassy to Jerusalem, which would be seen as a real provocation to Palestinian interests and claim on at least the eastern half of the city, uh, though the U.S. administration has been walking that proposal back in the last few weeks. Uh, I think what we're going to be seeing is a real enabling of uh, Israeli entrenchment in its status quo policies and keeping things pretty much as they are uh, as the Trump administration unfolds uh, various policies and approaches. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much, Dr. Sikharov, for coming on the line and being able to talk with us late in the evening. I'm sure you're very busy and have lots of <laughs> lots of other things to do. Yes, so. thank you so much for joining us and just giving just us your insights. Just mostly busy following the news, and thanks for contributing to the news. There's so yeah. much out there right now. True, Watch. Thank you both. Thank you very much. Okay, take care. Well, that was really interesting. It's, uh, it's, it's quite an interesting topic, and I suppose, as she pointed out right at the end there, it's going to continue being very topical given the likelihood that the Trump administration will be rather narrow in its approach and perhaps a little one-sided. And it, again, plays off the whole theme of uncertainty. <laughs> I feel like we've all been rolling always. in. Yes, yeah. um, a recurring theme and probably one that I imagine will be ongoing for quite some time. Um. So thank you for listening to Policy Talks. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. So send us an email or reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter. And a quick thanks to our research team who put this episode together. Couldn't do it without you. Mark Hyken, Josiah Witherspoon, Rian Foley, and our audio tech and producer, Jyotsna Venkatesh. Until next time, I'm Bridget. And I'm Matt. This is Policy Talks. Mm-hmm.